the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker filling in for Dan. It's been a fun week. I did this did this on a Tuesday and again yesterday, and this will be my last day with Dan, I believe, coming back on Monday. So thanks to everybody for, for listening this week. September 11 is, of course, uh, today's date, and it's the 19th anniversary of the September 11 terrorist attacks. And I thought it would be good to start the program tonight by looking back on those attacks and, and more importantly, what's happened since, because 19 years is kind of a long time, you know, it, it's flown by pretty fast. Uh, I'm sure it has for you as it has for me, but I think we've got to a point now where we can look back and, uh, and maybe draw some conclusions and have some perspective on on the events of that day and, and, and what followed. So like everybody else, I've got a pretty clear recollection of September 11, 2001. I know exactly what I was doing when the first report came over the radio that an airplane had flown into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. I had just pulled my car out of my garage and was starting to drive uh, downtown to my office. And of course, those first reports were... Uh, as as always with these kinds of events, uh, both confused and largely inaccurate. Initially, it was assumed that this was an accident and that it was a small plane that had flown into the World Trade Center. But that um, optimistic assumption didn't last for very long because about 20 minutes later, another airplane flew into the other tower. And at that point, it was obvious that uh, America was under attack. And it wasn't too much after that when uh, the third airplane um, crashed into the Pentagon. And, um, and then uh, later that, that morning, Flight 93 crashed in a field in Pennsylvania, brought down by the passengers to prevent it from carrying out an attack on the United States uh, Capitol. And so I followed those events, uh, as we all did, over the course of the morning as it unfolded. I had some kind of important, it seemed at the time anyway, kind of important work to do that day. A, a partner and I were uh, composing a long letter to a U.S. magistrate in South Carolina to try to get an order from him requiring an adverse party to resume a deposition process, which it had unilaterally terminated because it didn't like the way its witnesses were performing. And so... We spent the morning um, uh, working on this letter and, and doing some research and filling in some blanks and so on. And and over the course of the morning, our building, this is the uh, the Wells Fargo Center in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, my firm occupied at that time, I think, around 10, 10 stories in that in that building. 
you know, over the course of the morning and into the afternoon, uh, the building just emptied out. Uh, everybody was going home. Uh, everyone was stunned by the well, now, now obviously terrorist attacks. But also people were concerned about what was going to happen next. And this is something that, that knowing what did and didn't happen next, uh, we sometimes forget this. But at that time, uh, there was a widespread concern and even belief that the attacks we'd seen in New York City and in, and in Washington, D.C. were only the beginning. And uh, a lot of people fled from my building, a major office building in downtown Minneapolis, uh, because they were frightened uh, and concerned that that uh, before the day was out, there might be airplanes flying at our building or bombs going off and, or, or some other kind of Islamic uh, terrorist attack. Well, my partner and I weren't afraid of that. We thought that it was highly unlikely that the terrorists would make their way to Minneapolis on the very first day of, of whatever was whatever was going on. So so we continued working uh, through the day uh, in a virtually empty uh, office building. And, and at one point uh, toward the end of the afternoon, uh, we had finished up uh, the letter that we were working on and marshalling the facts and the evidence we needed to persuade the magistrate. And and we wandered down the hall. There was one other guy on our floor uh, working. And he actually wasn't working, but he was in his office. And he was watching television. He had a television set in his office. And I'll never forget this because it was one of the first times when I really felt like throwing a brick through a, a television screen. Because he had on one of the network news shows. I don't remember which one. But the the network anchor, as as my partner and I walked into the room, was speculating about whether uh, these terrorist attacks uh, had been brought on by President George W. Bush's uh, friendly relationship with Israel. And the implication seemed to be that perhaps America had brought these attacks on itself uh, by virtue of its alliance uh, with the Israelis. uh, that 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 approach uh, angered uh, me, <laughs> as it did a number of other people, I think. Um, but anyway, that was that was what happened on on September 11, 2001. And in the following days, a lot of us um, uh, were angry about these attacks. Everybody, I think, was angry about them. And a lot of us were really looking for something to bomb. You know, we wanted we wanted the U.S. Army, the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Marines cranked up and unleashed on whoever was left of the uh, the group that had that had carried out these these attacks and that did happen and then the Bush administration was indeed working on that as we all saw before long but at the same time uh President Bush and his administration was doing something that that I wasn't that crazy about a lot of, a lot of other conservatives weren't that crazy about and that was praising Islam and Bush kept talking about Islam as a religion of peace and, and going to mosques and, and meeting with imams and so on. And it was something that didn't go down very well with uh, with a lot of us in the immediate aftermath of the September 11 attacks. But it wasn't too long before uh, we got what we wanted, which is to say military action. And And in the early days of the Bush administration's response to the September 11 attacks, uh, it was it was really pretty inspiring and exciting, and it was carried out with extraordinary uh, skill and determination. You remember the the days when we had CIA uh, officers on horseback or camelback in Afghanistan with GPS devices? 
calling down uh, bombs on uh, on Taliban and Al Qaeda encampments and and so forth, uh, teaming up with the Northern Alliance, uh, the anti-Taliban uh, resistance in in Afghanistan, and um, and that operation was very successful. Uh, Afghanistan obviously had been used as as a, a, a training base for Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda had allied itself with the Taliban in some respects. Uh, almost taken over Afghanistan, or at least big chunks of it, and, and, and were using that territory to um, as a headquarters and, and, and as a training ground and an operations center. And and our attacks on Afghanistan were very successful in uh, driving al-Qaeda out of that country, uh, in uh, disrupting Taliban control of that country. And unfortunately, um, However, uh, al-Qaeda's leadership, at least some of its leadership, including Osama bin Laden, uh, managed to escape. And there was this climactic, um, you know, confrontation or near confrontation, I guess, at what was it, Bora Bora, uh, when, um, when the American forces were closing in but, but couldn't quite, couldn't quite um, uh, capture uh, bin Laden and his, uh, and his Confederates, uh, whoever was with him at that point, and they, and they escaped, I guess, into Pakistan and remained on the loose for quite a while, although not forever, as eventually the time came when we, we tracked him down and and killed him. But what, what what's interesting to me, um, when I look back, not just on the immediate aftermath of the terrorist attacks of 19 years ago, but on the time that has gone by since, what's what's really interesting to me and I think important is 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 not only what happened, but what didn't happen. Because in the aftermath of the September 11 attacks, uh, most of us believed that we were entering an era of Islamic terrorism. Most people believed that um, there would be follow-up attacks, you know, that they wouldn't just attack for one day and then quit. You know, uh, We assumed that they probably had more attacks in the pipeline that we would be seeing uh, the results of uh, very soon. And um, and there was a lot of concern that we were entering a long term era in which uh, Islamic uh, terrorism was going to bedevil the United States in a way somewhat similar to how uh, terrorism had had bedeviled uh, Israel for many years. Terrorism carried out by the Palestinians. And and what what to me is 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 most notable, really, as I look back over the last 19 years that began today, September 11. Uh, is that that has not happened, that despite the fact that there have been additional terrorist attacks, certainly, and there have been some disruptions to our lifestyles, we have not entered an era of widespread terrorism. And I want to talk about that a little bit when we come back from this break, because I think it's really interesting to to, to look at the causes of that and and why uh, the sequel uh, to September 11 has not turned out to be as bloody as so many of us feared at the at that time. So we will be right back with that after these messages. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan today. Before the break, we were talking about the fact that today is the 19th anniversary of the September 11 terrorist attacks in 
in New York and in Washington, D.C., and ultimately, I guess, uh, on the field in Pennsylvania. And, and we were talking about the fact that at that time, uh, it was widely believed, certainly by me and I think by a lot of other people, that we were entering a new era in which uh, Islamic terrorism was going to be a significant issue for years and years to come and an issue that likely would really disrupt our lives for years and years uh, to come. Uh, And we were acutely aware that defending against terrorism is very difficult, especially terrorism carried out by by people who themselves are willing to die. Uh, Suicidal uh, terrorist attacks are are very difficult uh, to stop, and obviously you you can't deter them. And so, and so in the immediate aftermath of, of September 11, a lot of us were kind of holding our breath, waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for the next round of attacks, waiting to see what more was going to come. And, and at that time, uh, as I mentioned before the break, uh, in addition to launching the attacks in Afghanistan that, that, that cleared al-Qaeda out of that country and, and, uh, and badly disrupted the Taliban, uh, in addition to that, President George W. Bush was was constantly talking about how Islam is a religion of peace, and he was going around uh, giving talks in mosques, and he was meeting with imams and so forth. And a lot of us um, uh, were of the view that evidence for the proposition that Islam is a religion of peace was was sorely lacking, <laughs> and we didn't particularly uh, we didn't particularly approve of of that part of of President uh, Bush's uh, response to the, the September 11 terrorist attacks. But what to me is most interesting about the 19 years that have elapsed, and, and most important really about the 19 years that have elapsed, is that we did not, as so many of us feared, enter into an era of pervasive terrorism. And certainly there have been terrorist attacks and, and there have been uh, terrorist cells that have been broken up. And this is one of the things that we saw for the Especially, it's probably still happening today, but especially for the first oh, couple of years, I think, after after September 11, 2001, you know, periodically there would be a, a news story, and it wasn't a huge, huge story, but there would be a report that six guys, uh, and they almost always were guys, in Buffalo, New York, or, uh, uh, you know, whatever it might be, anywhere across the country, uh, had been arrested. And they had been uh, talking about carrying out terrorist attacks, uh, they had maybe gone looking for for uh, plastic explosives or large quantities of fertilizer or whatever, and that had brought them to the attention of the FBI. And uh, an FBI agent had infiltrated the group, uh, and uh, and and now it would be in the newspaper that these these folks are under arrest and are being prosecuted, even though uh, they had not yet actually done much. They had plotted to carry out terrorist attacks, but had not made an awful lot of progress toward actually actually doing so. And at, and, and at that time, it was kind of infuriating that many liberals objected to, to these roundups and and said, this is really, um, uh, it's, it's the federal government's fault. Uh, they're, they're sort of tempting these, uh, uh, these, these young Muslims into, into this kind of charade where they're, they're talking about, about terrorism, but they aren't actually doing anything and they're being arrested, even though they haven't, haven't really committed a crime. Um, and but 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 I don't think there's any doubt that this kind of aggressive uh, monitoring and infiltration of 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 small groups of of radicalized uh, Muslims here in the U.S. Uh, was effective, uh, and it both uh, 
prevented, I'm sure, some attacks and also deterred others from forming similar groups because they could see that it wasn't going very well for people that uh, got together and started talking radically and, and, um, and looking for plastic explosives. Now, of course, there have been some some follow-on terrorist attacks. There's no question about that. We think about uh, Fort Hood. We think about San Bernardino, the couple there. We think about the guy who attacked the nightclub in Orlando. There have been some relatively significant terrorist attacks, but they have not been carried out by organized groups. And it's been similar in Europe. They've actually had probably more than we have. But with the exception of the London tube bombings, uh, there too, it's basically been one guy with a knife or somebody driving a truck into a into a crowd of pedestrians and things of that sort. We we really have not seen the kind of uh, error era of uh, of of terrorism that that so many of us believed that that we were going to see. And another illustration of this is uh, right here in Minnesota. As everybody knows, we have here a large Somali refugee community. And from that community, there have been 20 or 30, I don't know the exact number, but some such number of, of young uh, Muslim men who have been radicalized and who have gone, uh, left the United States either to fight in Africa for al-Shabaab or in Syria for the, for the uh, Islamic militants there. Some of them have been killed uh, fighting overseas. And naturally, a lot of people were afraid that um, that some of these folks and whoever it was that was radicalizing them, training them, sending them overseas, uh, would would eventually figure out that it was a lot easier to carry out terrorist attacks in Minneapolis than in um, in uh, Africa, uh, and 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 they might start attacking here. But uh, again, with the exception of a guy with a knife at a shopping center in Saint Cloud, a city north of the Twin Cities, that really hasn't happened. And certainly no coordinated large-scale attacks uh, have, have, have happened. And, and so w- one thing going on here, I think, is, is the Iraq War. Uh, the Iraq War is now, I think, considered by most people to have been a failure, even though it did achieve its, its objective. But I think many would say at, uh, at too high a cost. But, but the Iraq War and then the development of ISIS in that region probably had the effect of, of drawing attention of radicals, and not just attention, but presence of, of radical Muslims away from other regions and toward that region. And, um, and with the ultimate collapse of the so-called caliphate and the destruction of ISIS uh, under the Trump administration, um, you know, those, those radical efforts have, have really collapsed uh, although we see some remnants, I suppose, uh, uh, in Syria, but they have basically have basically collapsed. And I and I think that the, the fact that fighting was drawn to that region probably has helped in terms of keeping the United States and and Europe relatively free of of terrorism. But here's the other point, and I think really the most important point I want to make, and that is that uh, it seems to me that the fact that we have not uh, entered into an era of, of widespread organized terrorism has got to reflect something that's been going be, going on behind the scenes in the Islamic community itself, the Muslim community itself. And I, I think that out of sight of most of the rest of us, I think it has to be true that Muslims have taken this problem in hand, normal, moderate, ordinary Muslims who have no desire to carry out mass murder or to commit suicide. And and, and I think what we're seeing has got to be in part the result of a real effort on the part of mainstream Muslims, both here and in Europe and around the world, 
uh, not to be tarred, not for the religion to be tarred with this uh, this scourge of terrorism, but to really try to suppress it and, and lead people away from it. And I think that has to have been going on, and I think it has to have been pretty successful. And I think that's got to be part of the reason why we have not entered this this uh, regime of, of widespread terrorism that so many of us feared 19 years ago. So uh, with that uh, happy conclusion, uh, we'll go to another break, and we will be back with more on The Dan Prof Show. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Scott McKay. Scott, welcome to the program. Hey, John. How are you? Doing great. Scott, I want to talk about an article that you've got in the American Spectator. Uh, titled America's Struggle Session Comes to College Football. I want to talk about that piece, but also more broadly about about this phenomenon of woke uh, sports and what's going on there and how America's uh, sports fans are are reacting to it. But but let's start with your piece in the American Spectator. You analogize much of what's going on right now in America to the struggle sessions that they saw during the uh, Great, uh, the Cultural Revolution in uh, in Red China. Talk about that a little bit, if you would. Well, I, you know, um, actually, the Cultural Revolution is a pretty good marker for what we're seeing. Um, and I talked about it in the piece a good bit. I mean, there, you know, Mao wanted to get rid of the four olds, which was, you know, ideas, habits, culture, and and um, uh, I can't remember what the fourth one was, but um, you know, basically wiping out whatever society in China existed prior to the communist revolution and um, old beliefs. And I think you can see that in uh, what the sort of cultural Marxist left wants to do in America. I mean, they, they have declared war on really, it's not even a political thing other than they want to turn everything political. I mean, it's an attack on our culture. Um, you know, the most obvious manifestation of that is, all these statues they want to take down. I mean, they started with Confederates and, you know, people kind of were a little embarrassed about that, but no sooner did they get buy-in on Robert E. Lee than, you know, they were going after U.S. Grant and <laughs> that's right. Cervantes and, that's right. and, and, and Frederick Douglass. <laughs> and of course, and of course, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, like it, the people whose statues are getting, you know, knocked down and you're like, well, wait a minute, that, that you, y'all, y'all would think that's one of the good guys. What are you doing? And the answer is, uh, you know, becomes very obvious that, you know, that they're not against injustice. They're against America. They're against America. You know, and one of the clearest signs is unjust. But and what, one of the clearest signs of that, I think, Scott, is like what happened here in Minnesota, where they tore down a statue of Christopher Columbus on the grounds of the state capitol. You know, they, they wish America had never been discovered. You know, they think everything that's happened since 1492 right. needs to go. Well, I mean, you know, it's and it's this this idea that, you know, the Stone Age civilizations that survived uh, prior to the coming of the white man in America, you know, were were some idyllic, um, you know, they're a bunch of nice guys. And, 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 you know, the white dudes came and ruined it. And I, nothing could be further from the truth. 
the, the Indian tribes that populated North America killed each other, you know, over and over again. And, um, you know, I mean, that's just not to say that they're necessarily better or worse than anybody, but that's how human beings are. Um, and, I, you know, there's a certain level of just willful ignorance that that permeates uh, this entire woke culture. Um, and, I, you know, I, it's very similar to the things that you saw uh, back in the late 60s when the, the, you know, the Maoists in China did the Chinese Revolution or the Cultural Revolution. I mean, it was, you know, just anybody who was an intellectual, anybody who had uh, the ability to think for themselves was immediately pilloried and, you know, turned into a figure of ridicule, um, you know, tortured and whatever. And you're really seeing a lot of that um, in in this country, the 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 format it takes is not the same. You know, I mean, it, back in the Cultural Revolution in China, they would generally, you know, beat the heck out of you and like cut off half your hair and, you know, put you in an uncomfortable position somewhere that a bunch of people could throw things at you. Um, you know, now it's kind of a little bit more high tech lynching sort of, sort of thing. Um, and, and a perfect example is what happened to Drew Brees. Um, which, as it turns out, was just as effective as what they were doing in the Cultural Revolution in China, because you know Drew Brees is running around with Jacob Blake taped on his helmet, and which is really uh, shocking to me. Fan living down here in, in Louisiana, I mean, you know, it's uh, jarring, frankly, because we always thought Drew was like a really good guy and a patriotic American, and I mean, he has just completely thrown that overboard because. You know, there's no percentage in it for him anymore. Um, You know, and I I just don't think the American people are going to put up with it. I I think you can already see the, you know, TV ratings for Major League Baseball, of the NBA. I think what's coming to the NFL. I mean, you saw last night um, the the game. I mean, I didn't see it because I'm no longer watching, but, you know, it's pretty much wide open. The fans in Kansas City uh, booed this show of unity for racial injustice or whatever yeah. it was. I mean, booted. We're up against a break here. we gotta, we got to uh, take a break. And we're going to come back with more from Scott McKay and the wokeness of American sports right after this. It's a shame the way you mess around with the It's a shame the way you hurt me. It's a shame the way you mess around with this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back. We are talking with Scott McKay about the uh, about what's happening on the American sports scene. And Scott, before the break, we were talking about the fact that the NFL season is getting underway. And like the NBA and, and like to some extent Major League Baseball, uh, the NFL thinks it's, it needs to bow down uh, to the Black Lives Matter movement, the whole woke movement. Let me ask you this question, Scott. Why is it that these pro sports leagues uh, are so eager, seemingly, to get on that bandwagon? Well, you know, I think the fact that particularly in football and basketball, um, you have a disproportionate number of players who are black. Um, but the other thing is, it's not even really a racial thing. It's the fact that everybody who's playing uh, pro and college uh, football and basketball or pro football and basketball came from college. 
And, you know, when you're really there to play football, um, you're going to take the easiest curriculum possible to stay eligible for three years. And that tends to involve majors that end in the word studies. You know, so if you're majoring in African-American studies or, you know, something like that, um, you get force fed left wing ideology. So they come out of college and, you know, they're woke. And when you get a critical mass of, you know, kids black and white that have been indoctrinated into that, um, you know, I I mean, they're in a position to dictate to the owners and the league management, you know, we're going to do this or else, you know, we'll go on strike. You saw it in the NBA. I mean, like Jacob Blake gets shot and they don't want to play ball anymore. Um, you know, I don't know what you do with that if you're an owner or, you know, the, the, the commissioner of the league. Or I mean, you're going to have to – you've got to placate them some kind of way. Um, you know, the problem is is that you're cutting your own throat with the fans because the, the fans didn't sign up for any of this stuff. They bought tickets to watch football and basketball games, right? And, you know, now you're going to inflict politics on them when the entire exercise of being a sports fan is an escape from politics. And I, it amazes me that nobody seems to get that anymore. You know, Scott, um, let me just pause you. Let me, let me pause you there for a second, because Clark Griffith is a sure. good friend of mine. His family used to own the Washington Senators, then the Minnesota Twins. He ran the Minnesota Twins for a while, and at one time he was very influential with Major League Baseball. He really started Major League Properties, which is you know the the, the logoing of, of T-shirts and hats and selling them to the fans and so on. It was really his sure. idea. And way back when they did a study, Major League Baseball did a study, and one of the things they found was that a key reason why people like professional sports is because they have nothing to do with politics. Because you can go yeah. to a game and you you you're, you you just cheer for your team. All you care about is the Senators scoring runs. You don't have to worry about the fact that the guy sitting next to you is a Democrat or a Republican or whatever it might be. A whole a big part of the appeal of sports is to put all that stuff behind, and that's a lesson that he very much promulgated with the owners, you know, de- several decades ago now that has been completely forgotten. I guess. Well, I, you know, like Michael Jordan had the the famous quotes: "Republicans buy." sneakers too. Um, I mean, you know, this is something that everybody has known for a long time, right? Don't alienate half your audience. Um, but you know, I mean, I, you go back to the left ruins, everything they touch, you know, they, they've done this to Hollywood. I mean, we don't even, that's an entire, you know, show in and of itself with, uh, what Hollywood is now going to do with the Oscars. And you have to basically fulfill diversity requirements, you know, just to be eligible, and you know, the whole thing is a is a is a suicide pact. Um, but I, you know, this is something that you can't really avoid in American society anymore. Despite the fact that I don't think anybody wants it. I mean, it's this is for whatever reason, you know, people have just. I think it's they're being intimidated into doing these things that they know are bad business. Um, and they're going to pay the price. I mean, you see the TV ratings. Eventually, these contracts are going to come up with these networks. And, you know, they're not going to get what they got before. And so these players that have driven it, 
I mean, you know, the, the joke is, is some of these guys are going to have to learn the code because they're not going <laughs> to make money anymore. Um, you know, it's so and, comical, Scott. You know, the NBA has got all these left-wing slogans that players are authorized to put on their jerseys. One of them is something like shared economics, right? Well, the average salary in the NBA is $7 million a year, I believe. How about if they share some of that with me, you know, of all the yeah, people exactly. in the world, of all the people in the world who can't be accused of sharing it is uh, professional basketball players. But, Scott, I, let, what I really want to focus on now for the time we have remaining is the reaction of the sure. fans. Let's talk about that. What, what are we seeing in ratings? What are we seeing? And have we, have we had any games played in front of crowds? Um, well, not in the NBA and not in Major League Baseball. I guess they're doing a 25% capacity thing in the NFL, as I understand it. Um, I think that was the, the, you know, Arrowhead Stadium Thursday night. That's, you know, that's what it was, was, I don't know, 20,000 people or something in the stands. Um, <laughs> the video I saw, it sounded like a lot more when they started booing. Um, but hey, let's, I, let's talk know, about that, Scott, because I'm boycotting pro sports. I'll tell you right now, I'm not watching anything. I, I haven't, watched a, haven't watched a minute. I don't, I got along without on this long. I don't care. But, but expand on that a little bit. What, what were they booing at Arrowhead Stadium? I missed all that. Well, it was, you know, it was both teams come to the middle of the field and they're going to, you know, have a moment of silence for George Floyd or something. Um, and, you know, the, the fans did not take to that well at all, um, you know, and, and, uh, and there was booing and, you know, look, nobody's watching. Uh, I mean, the NBA is down 40, 45 percent. Uh, Major League Baseball has taken a big hit in their in their ratings. I think it's down a third or something like that. Nobody thinks the NFL is going to survive without losing a third of their TV audience. Um, I'm not sure college football isn't going to take a major hit too, because well, they're not even a playing in a lot of leagues. You know, the Big Ten. For well, example, yeah, I mean that, that's you know it, these university administrators have gone completely nuts with COVID and everything else. Um, but I mean, you know, like the TV audiences for that, because, you know, you're getting a ton of this black lives matter stuff in college football too. Um, you know, and that's no good. Um, you know, but the other thing is, is you've gone we've got it. We're up in a, against another hard break. So yeah. we need to leave it there for the sure. moment. We're going to come back after the break though. And one of the things I want to talk about is how do we get out of this mess? So we'll be back with more with Scott McKay right after the, these messages. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking with Scott McKay about the wokeness of American sports and where this is all going to lead. Scott, um, this, this, the American sports audience is segmented to some degree. You know, some sports have got more conservative, more more liberal audiences. How, how does that? Well, I, I you know they've they've done some sort of demographic plotting on on you know which sports leagues attract you know which kind of fans, and you know the NBA kind of skews more left than some of these other ones. 
Um, but, you know, we were talking about college football just before the break. College football next to like NASCAR is, you know, the most conservative sports audience in America. And the NFL is a little bit less conservative, but it's still, you know, skews to the right. Um, you know, so I, like you're really, really, really putting yourself in a, in a difficult situation with your audience pushing this stuff too far. Um, and you know, that, I think, you know, you're going to see that. And the question I have, Scott, the last question I want to, I want to pose to you is how in the heck did these sports leagues get out of this? What's the exit strategy? I mean, do they have to have black lives matter painted in the end zone forever? I mean, how, how, how do they get out of this and get back into a normal relationship with their fans? I don't know because, you know, when this stuff all started, I kind of thought about it a while. I don't remember, I don't know of any institution in American culture that has freed itself from so this cultural Marxist uh, domination. I mean, Hollywood certainly has not. Academia certainly has not. The mainstream news media certainly has not. The arts have not. I mean, you know, they take these institutions, they corrupt them, and then the only real escape from it is to stand up parallel institutions altogether. And, I, you know, I, sports has always sort of been the last bastion against that. Um, and you do have owners, I think most of whom are Republicans, um, that, you know, that own these sports teams, and I guess they can stand up and do something. But, you know, if the players don't want to just play sports, if they want to be little politicians as well, you know, I, ju- I don't know where the answer is. I, I, I mean, I think we may be seeing the death of, you know, college and pro sports as, you know, a major American cultural institution because like you said, I mean, you, you stepped away from it for a couple of months because of COVID and you kind of don't really miss it that much. I mean, it's a luxury item and you can find other luxury items to occupy yourself with. Yeah. Or maybe we all just uh, start watching boxing and MMA so far. I don't think they have gone down the woke well, you know, route. That Scott McKay, start reading books more. Yeah, exactly. Scott McKay, we have to leave it there, but thank you so much for being with us. Yes, we'll sir. be right back hey, after these weekend. messages. You too. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Brad Palumbo, the Eugene S. Thorpe Fellow at the Foundation for education. Brad, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Brad, I want to talk to you about a piece that you've got in uh, National Review, 
And uh, the title of it is Why the Economic Scars of Rioting Will Haunt Minneapolis for Decades. And I got to tell you, Brad, as we as we start here, that this is a subject uh, close to my heart because I'm coming to you from a studio in Minnesota that's probably five or ten miles from where that rioting took place. So um, it, it's an important subject to, to me and others here. Let, let's just start with the broad question, Brad. Why is it that the, that the, the results of that of the rioting and the destruction are, will be with us for a long time? Well, you know, the public's attention really focused on the rioting and the looting and all the clips and videos we saw of the destruction when it was all happening, you know, in the weeks and months after the death of George Floyd on May 29th. But what's important to realize is that just because the media and the national focus moves on, uh, those buildings are still burned to the ground. Those stores are still vandalized and looted. And so the reason that, that it's going to haunt Minneapolis for decades is because one-off instances of destruction like that, that, that destroy businesses and enterprise, have ripple economic effects that, that influence the landscape of a city or an area for years and years to come. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen this in past instances of rioting, haven't we? I mean, I believe I've read that in Los Angeles, for example, after the Watts riots, you know, decades later, you're still still seeing boarded up buildings and so forth. Right, exactly. I mean, think about it like this. Property rights are the most basic thing in a market economy, capitalism. And you have to have them for there to be functioning business, economic growth, opportunity. So when you have something like rioting and looting that basically just slaps uh, property rights in the face, well, that's going to discourage business investment over the next decade. And then even when insurance does cover the damage, which it absolutely does not always do, that's a myth, um, but when it does, you see sky-high insurance rates in that area for the next several decades even. So we've seen this. We're not just projecting what's going to happen in Minneapolis. We actually saw, we have academic studies that show in the 1960s era, civil civil rights era riots, Uh, They had long-term economic consequences and lower property values for black-owned homes and businesses, importantly, because that's who's supposed to be helped, uh, supposedly, by these agitators. So uh, we know that this will happen. It's just a matter of, of how bad. Yeah, I want to amplify the point that you made there, Brad, about insurance. I think there's a lot of people who just naively think it's okay if, if these rioters burn down a building because, hey, it's just the insurance company that's going to lose. Well, first of all, that's really, even if it were true, that's really stupid for a lot of reasons. But number two, it's not true. The figures I've seen suggest that probably less than half of the, of the property damage uh, from, the, from the rioting and the arson will, in fact, be covered by any kind of insurance. Yeah, so I, I, I think the first point is important. It doesn't actually matter because you and I both have health insurance, I assume, but we're not okay with someone punching us in the face just because we have insurance, right, to pay for the medical costs. It's kind of the same thing, right? Even if a business has the best insurance plan in the world, there's still a lot of unpaid labor, emotional trauma, and, and lost income that comes with having your store burned to the ground. But importantly, like you noted, it's just not true that that insurance is going to cover everything. I mean, I, I have two statistics that kind of tell this story. 70% of businesses are underemployed, and 40 percent, I'm sorry, underinsured and 40 percent of small businesses have no insurance at all. So it's just you cannot excuse rioting and looting by waving your hands without insurance. The factual reality and the morality of it are both totally against that position. And I'm not sure a lot of people realize how extensive the damage here in Minneapolis was and, and other other places where there's been rioting and arson and looting as well. 
about 1,500 damage, uh, build, uh, businesses, maybe more, uh, have been damaged in the Twin Cities. There's also some rioting in St. Paul, and we've had looting right in downtown Minneapolis. It was Lake Street, which is a ways away from downtown Minneapolis, where the original rioting took place. And there's a couple miles worth of uh, Lake Street. You know, it's a big commercial street uh, that have been burned or, or, you know, devastated in various ways. But there's also been uh, looting and burning and arson in, right in downtown Minneapolis. We're talking about a lot right. of businesses. You know, the idea that this is, you know, mostly peaceful or whatever the mantra on the evening news is, we're talking about 1,500 businesses that have been destroyed. Right. And that's part of the, the, the what's interesting is the 1,500 businesses damaged or destroyed is the figure for, for Minneapolis, but that's only for the immediate rioting that happened after George Floyd. There's been more sense, less, but more. So that number is actually going to climb and climb and climb as we see the total impact. And that's why, you know, I, 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 I was prompted to write this column when I read news report after news report that, uh, from CBS Minnesota of these business owners saying, we're battle weary. We're moving on. We just can't do it anymore being downtown. The city officials don't care about my business. They didn't protect my people. We were all on our own. Right. You see report after report of these people packing up and leaving. And it's like, I don't, I can't blame them. I can't blame business owners for doing that. But it's a really sad thing to see because they're taking with them jobs, opportunity, and economic growth. Yeah, there was a high-tech manufacturing company uh, that employed uh, 50 people, you know, good-paying jobs, that I think was located just a block or two off off Lake Street, if I remember correctly. But, right, the owner of that business said uh, that they, that is city officials, they don't care about my business. They didn't protect our people. Uh, we were on our own. I'm out of here. You know, I'm leaving Minneapolis. So those jobs are going to go somewhere else. And we've seen that story, of course, over and over again. And here's another thing, Brad, that I think is important. There was a big Target store on Lake Street that was looted, burned, you know, it wasn't burned to the ground, but it was obviously badly damaged. And and a lot of the attention focuses on the harm done to small businesses. But I look at something like that or the Walgreens pharmacies, for example, that got looted and burned. I, I have to wonder, you know, however woke Target Corporation might be, and it's pretty darn woke, uh, these are all business decisions. And I have to wonder uh, how willing these major companies are going to be to rebuild and to have stores and branches in areas that have been destroyed by rioting. Well, right. You know, obviously Target is a profitable big company, so they do have insurance for their, their properties. But you're right. Are they going to be willing to rebuild? My hunch says yes, but they're going to have higher prices and higher insurance costs. And that's going to be passed on to the local communities. So this idea that you can burn down a store and well, first off, think of all the, the local people, right, who are employed by that target, how they're going to be out of luck. So one of the interesting and, and frustrating things with the narrative surrounding the riots and the looting is that there's a tendency to, to dismiss it when the target is like a rich company or a big corporation or, a, a, you know, a high-end store. But that actually makes no sense because the same economic principles, right, about property rights, about jobs and opportunity apply to Target as do your mom-and-pop diner. Even if that one, I think, is more emotionally compelling to, to, to want to defend it, in both cases, it's not just wealthy business owners, right? It's, we're talking about real people's jobs and lives and the prices they pay at the store next week. So I, for one, don't think it serves social justice or racial justice to sabotage, burn, or loot urban, heavily minority communities. Well, there's another reason why even the businesses that didn't get burned and didn't get looted are going are to be damaged by the riots, and that is they need customers. 
And I'll just give you one example of this, Brad. Uh, the, the intersection of Lake Street and Hennepin Avenue is the heart of Uptown, which, which uh, you know, not too far from downtown Minneapolis, uh, and historically has been a very vibrant, busy shopping, entertainment, and dining district. Restaurants, bars, stores, uh, a nice shopping center right there on that corner. Well, there was a gun battle between apparently between rival gangs uh, one night uh, when the place is you know crowded with shoppers and so on shortly after the George Floyd riots. Well, no one's going back there. You know, the first time people learn that, that there, there's been gunfire, uh, you're not going out to dinner in that neighborhood. You're not shopping in that neighborhood. And so the violence is going to is going to really impact even the businesses that survive. Yeah, I mean, it will, especially because part of what we're witnessing right now is people leaving big cities. I know I live in the outskirts of Washington, D.C., and my friends are across the border. It's like, one, most people are working remotely because of coronavirus and because of shutdowns. And two, I have friends who looked outside their window and saw their streets, stores across the street from them that they go to every day being looted and ransacked and having the windows smashed. So I would not be walking down the street spending money anytime soon. I would even be looking to move, get out of an area where the local officials don't enforce the rule of law, even though they take my tax dollars in increasingly high amounts. So you're going to see customer bases dry up, too, when people are heading out of these cities and leaving only the most actually poorest and disadvantaged communities in the ruins to pick up the rubble. They're the ones who can't afford to move, can't afford to leave. So the social justice and FIFA people are really, with every, every brick they throw, hurting the people they claim to support. And that's why I think, it, I think it's such an empty movement. We're going to run to a break, and we will be back with more from Brad Palumbo after these messages. Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with uh, Brad Colombo, who is the Eugene S. Thorpe Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, taking off from a column that he has in National Review, the title of which is Why the Economic Scars of Rioting Will Haunt Minneapolis for Decades. And Brad, before the before the break, you were talking about another really fundamental point, which is the exodus away from American cities. And, and Minneapolis is one of them, but it's not the only one. And a combination of COVID and the riots have caused a lot of people to rethink the desirability of, of living in these big uh, urban centers. And of course, if you add riots on top of that, uh, it's that much worse. Right. I mean, I'm, I, I'm working remotely now, and I no longer feel particularly pegged to the D.C. area just personally. So in the next year or two, when the opportunity presents itself to move somewhere with less chaos, a lower cost of living, and lower taxes, rest assured that I'll be taking that opportunity. And I can say the same even for lots of mid-20s and, and young, early 30s young professionals I know who, who would have been tied to the city historically, but now there's been this big shift to remote work. Why wouldn't people leave? If you're going to have these giant cities from Minneapolis to Portland to Kenosha to New York City, where they are going to take increasingly sky-high amounts of your money away from you, ostensibly for your benefit, but then fail to even provide a semblance of law and order or property rights. I mean, the city of Seattle it actually allowed an 
anarchist insurrectionist zone to prop up in their city where multiple people were shot and killed. So this idea that there's something drawing people to cities that, that's so powerful, they'll stay through all this chaos, I can't fathom it. So I expect to see an exodus in the next five years for sure. Well, we're seeing that in Minneapolis. I have a number of friends who own houses uh, within the city of Minneapolis. I think every one of them have told me, uh, we're going to put our house up for sale. We're moving out of the city. We're not doing it right now because we don't want to sell at the bottom of the market, right? But as soon as things quiet down a little bit, we're going to, we're going to quietly put our house on the market and, and move someplace else. But the other thing is the commercial real estate market. You know, you, as you've seen from news stories, a number of people who own businesses in downtown Minneapolis uh, after that recent round of, of looting and arson were quoted as saying, you know, we're out of here. It's not, it's no longer worth it to us to try to run a business in this city. And when I talk to people in commercial real estate, what I'm hearing is that uh, there's going to be a stunning, and I mean stunning, exodus of businesses from the major office towers in downtown Minneapolis as those uh, as those leases run out. Right. And I guess, is this what progressivism looks like? Is this what progress looks like? Because I mean, you have these city officials who, who, in many cities, and I know that Minneapolis has some pretty far left city officials, um, they basically have either failed to condemn or soft-pedaled or treated with kids' gloves, rioters and looters, and this is the, the inevitable product of a collapse of property rights anywhere. I mean, one of the most basic principles in economics is that property rights in capitalist systems strongly correlates with economic growth and opportunity, right? Because where you don't have stable property rights and you don't have rule of law, business, basic business and employment and, and wealth creation cannot function. So these city officials are not just neglecting individual business owners who are being disadvantaged by rioting and looting. They're neglecting their whole community in the long term. And what we're going to see, it's, it's going to be ugly, frankly, how these places are going to be haunted by this like a ghost for uh, honestly decades and decades to come. Uh, and the people who will be left taking up the pieces from it are going to be disproportionately low-income urban minority communities. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in Minneapolis, if there was a, a uh, there are a couple of iconic moments. And uh, one of them was when the mayor uh, of Minneapolis uh, abandoned the third precinct uh, police station uh, pulled the police officers out of it, and there it was on television. Uh, the rioters took over the precinct station and uh, and destroyed it, you know, burned it, looted it. And and I think, you know, pretty much everybody watching that happen in real time was thinking the same thing, which is if they can't even protect their own precinct station, how are they going to protect me? And and I think for some reason these, these liberals in government have lost track of some of the real fundamentals, and there's nothing more... Fundamental than personal safety. If you're not confident you're going to be safe, you're not going to get in your car and drive to some urban area, you know, for the for the sake of going to a ball game or or having dinner. Uh, if you don't think it's safe, you just won't go. Right. And I was talking about this with a friend uh, who who lives in reports out of Seattle just yesterday, and he actually was he was telling me about the fact that the city officials aren't being held to account for this basic failure of government 101, because the people that live in these cities, especially when you get to the West Coast, you're talking about Portland or Seattle, are so far to the left that they actually start blaming all the chaos and destruction on their woke city officials not being leftist enough. 
So this is a self-fulfilling prophecy that's really going to send some of these cities spiraling out of control. And I think the only option that people really have is to vote with their feet. You, if your tax dollars, where you contribute them, if you, have the, if you are able to move and be mobile, is a choice. And you're sending a message with that choice. So I hope that we see people voting with their feet, taking their business, taking their homes, taking their tax dollars out of cities where they're not even doing the basics of Government 101. It's really interesting, Brad. I, I don't know that I can fully explain why this happened. Uh, again, sticking with Minneapolis for the moment, it was it wasn't that long ago when when Minneapolis had a majority Republicans on the city council. You know, maybe that was what I don't know, thirty, forty years, something like that. Well, now you know there's not a Republican in sight, uh, let alone a conservative. You know, we've got a city council, every member of which is a Democrat, except for one person who thinks the Democrats aren't far enough left. He's in the Green Party. And and the mayor, of course, is a, is you know the boy mayor is a is a Democrat, and and in response to um, the George Floyd riots and so forth, uh, the, the the response on the part of the Minneapolis City Council was to, was was literally to try to abolish the Minneapolis Police Department. You know, I, where where did, where does this ideology come from? Well, I think that you see some of the ideology that that's fueling these movements comes out clearly at the universities, right? This is critical race theory. This is Marxism. Uh, I mean, that's what's motivating some of these fringe actors who have bubbled up to the surface during all of this. But the biggest problem, too, is that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because if you are one of the many Americans who does support modest or reasonable criminal justice reform, uh, well, these kinds of protests that are violent actually sabotage criminal justice reform. The support for Black Lives Matter, the support for police reform, it dropped exponentially. We're talking like 10 or 20 points in the polls just from June to August as all this violent unrest was going on. Peaceful protest often helps promote a cause, but violent protest has been proven really doesn't. So they're going to keep destroying stuff because they're so discontent with the status quo, but then doing that further enshrines the status quo. This is a problem where there's no easy out here. Well, there's no easy out for the city, uh, but there's an out for a lot of its residents, which is to move. And I think we're we're seeing that increasingly across the country, aren't we? Yes, we are, uh, and I think we'll see more of that. Um, I cer- I certainly hope I hope that we do. Well, thank you. We've been talking with Brad uh, Palumbo, uh, a Eugene S. Thorpe Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. And uh, thank you for being with us, Brad. We're going to go to a break now and be back with more after these messages. I asked the guy, why are you so fly? He said, funky, coma, data. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan today. And we are delighted now to be joined by John Lott. John, thanks for being on the program. Oh, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me on. John, you've got a piece at Newsweek uh, about the fact that Americans' right to keep and bear arms is on the ballot this election. Some people might say that sounds a little alarmist, but why is it true? Right. Well, I mean, I'm sure people have heard similar things in the past, but 
I think there are a lot of important differences in this election. Uh, one thing is you have the presidential candidate, the vice presidential candidate, and the Democratic leaders in the Senate uh, who are promising to get rid of the filibuster. Um, and that may sound like an arcane Senate rule to a lot of people, but it's going to have a major impact on what can get passed. I mean, right now, no party has close to 60 votes in the Senate. And uh, in order to pass anything, they've had to have bipartisan support. And that prevents a lot of things from getting passed on both sides. I'm sure that there's plenty of bills that Republicans would love to pass uh, that there's no chance of them picking up any Democratic votes, let alone uh, the seven Democratic votes that would be necessary in order for them to uh, uh, overcome the, the filibuster. A filibuster, just so people know, means that senators can go and hold the floor and talk as long as they want uh, until uh, closure, uh, what's called a cloture vote is able to take place and succeed, where you can get 60 people who say that, you know, you've had enough time speaking and now we should move to the stage where we actually vote on things. And, uh, uh, but if you get rid of the filibuster, then the Senate will become just like the house and you'll be able to go and pass things on simple majority votes. And there'll be a whole, if you have the same party controlling the house and the Senate, uh, legislation will now be able to kind of zip right through, uh, you know, extremely quickly uh, in a way that we haven't seen before. And there's a large number of bills that the Democrats are promising. Uh, one just has to read their platform uh, that they just had for their national convention. Uh, you know, among the changes is they want to make it so that uh, people can sue gun makers or gun sellers whenever a gun is used improperly, if it's ever used in the commission of a crime or there's an accidental shot or somebody commits suicide, then uh, the gun makers would be sued. I mean, could you imagine what would happen if uh, we had the same type of rules for, let's say, car makers? I mean, there's 4.5 million people who were injured in car accidents each year. If each of them could go and sue uh, the car makers uh, to go and recoup any hospitalization costs or anything, whenever they were hurt in an accident, even if it had nothing to do with the, the car maker, you know, somehow improperly designing the car, uh, you know, the car makers would be put out of business. And the same, I think that's basically the point and the idea for that. And of course, you have many other types of things like bans on many types of semi-automatic guns, um, you know, the whole list of things there. But it goes beyond that. Um, if they get rid of the filibuster, uh, they're going to be able to go and change the number of judges on different courts uh, with a simple party line vote. So, you know, people talk a lot about the judges that uh, Trump's put on the bench. and He's been able to put 53 members on the circuit courts, but he's only been able to bring the courts into rough balance. The Democrats still control the circuit courts for 24 states, as well as the District of Columbia, which is considered by far the second most important court in the country because all the regulatory issues go through that. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, the thing is you have a lot of states which are passing crazy gun control laws happen to be located in the circuit courts with the Democrats' control. Um, and they get approved whatever gun control laws that they try to push 
end up getting approved. Well, the Supreme Court has been kind of in gridlock. You have four Democrats on there who uh, say that they don't believe that there's an individual right to own guns. You have four who strongly believe that. And then you have John Roberts, who's in the middle. And because Roberts, you know, the Republicans are afraid that just like on everything from religious freedom to DACA to uh, Obamacare, that he would go the other way on the gun issue, they've been unwilling to go and bring up any more cases on it. And so the circuit courts have pretty much had free reign to go and determine, you know, whatever they rules that they think meet constitutional muster there. Um, but the John, thing we're going to we're gonna have to run to a break here, John, but uh, we're going to pick it up right after uh, these commercial messages. We're talking with John Lott, president of the Crime, uh, Crime Prevention Research Center. We'll be right back after this. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with John Lott um, about... um, gun control and about what's going to happen if the Democrats are able to take control of the Senate. John, I, we're once again reading headlines in newspapers, record gun purchases, uh, shortages of ammunition. A lot of Americans obviously believe that their their uh, Second Amendment rights are, are in real jeopardy. Right. Well, I mean, people see just the news. I mean, during the coronavirus, you had issues with police not being able to respond uh, to calls that were going into them. Uh, you know, you've had many jurisdictions around the country where uh, between a third and half of, uh, of the inmates that are in jail had been released. Um, you know, so people were concerned even before the riots. And now we have situations where police have been ordered to stand down, uh, where a lot of the uh, tools that are available to police to control situations have been taken away from them, where police budgets have been cut. Uh, look, anybody who knows my academic research knows that I think police are the single most important factor for reducing crime. But the police themselves understand that even under normal circumstances, they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after the crimes occurred. And now they may not arrive at all. And so the question is, what should people do when they're having to confront a criminal by themselves? And, and having a gun turns out to be by far the most effective way for people to defend themselves and their families. You know, the Democrats have been hostile to firearms for a long time. This is nothing new. But, but it seems to me, John, and I'm interested to get your perspective on this, that, that like a lot of other things in our, in our political life, this has been amped up another another order of magnitude so that we've got uh, Kamala Harris talking about issuing executive orders uh, to limit uh, gun ownership. And we've got, we've got Joe Biden promising to make Beto O'Rourke his guns are, you know, and it's, what do you think? Do you agree that we're seeing a, you know, a new, a new level of anti-gun activism coming from the left? Right. I mean, well, one just has to look at the stuff that Michael Bloomberg's gun control groups have put out in there. 
you have uh, his organizations are talking about taking away guns from police. So, you know, nobody would have it. And, you know, good luck with that. I mean, people have seen in Chicago and other places, uh, you know, gun bans haven't stopped criminals from getting guns, even when you've had whole nations go and ban guns. Uh, even island nations go and ban guns. Every single time the guns have been banned, uh, murder rates have gone up. And the, there's a very simple reason for that, and that is when guns have been banned, the most law-abiding good citizens are the ones who turn in their guns, not the criminals. And to the extent that you disarm law-abiding citizens relative to criminals, uh, you see increases in murder rates because it's easier for them to go and commit the crimes that they wanted to commit. Uh, you know, it'd be nice if it was easy to stop criminals from getting guns, but it's about as difficult to stop criminals from getting guns as it is to stop criminals from buying illegal drugs, which, by the way, drug dealers are a major source of providing illegal guns. You know, with all the people that we're seeing buying guns, a lot of them reportedly first-time gun buyers, do you think that popular support for the Second Amendment might be growing as more and more people perceive that they need to defend themselves? Well, I think there is change in the surveys that show uh, support for gun control has been going down somewhat. Um, but the point is, is that Democrats are very strongly locked into this. And if they go and take control of the Senate and win the presidency, uh, you know, one just has to read their platform, just has to listen to the many, many promises that Biden and the Democrats are making, uh, you know, even uh, Democrats who are running for the Senate for traditionally gun-owning states like Montana. Uh, you know, you have Steve Bullock in Montana. He's basically endorsed, you know, virtually every gun control regulation that's been put up. Uh, you know, he's endorsed all but one of the ones that are mentioned in the Democratic platform, including being able to sue gun makers and bans on many types of guns and a whole list of other things that are there. So, you know, you've seen a real change in the Democratic Party. I mean, 15, 20 years ago, uh, when Clinton was president, uh, you know, you wouldn't have had uh, Democrats from some of these uh, states going and supporting the gun control movement so wholeheartedly as you see even those Democrats supporting it now. So, John, we've got just about a minute and a half left. And, I, and before we sign off, I do want to point out, too, to our listeners that one area where the Democrats are going to be able to do drastic things if they control the Senate uh, is gun control, but it's not the only one. So, for example, a lot of people think if they take the Senate, they'll abolish the filibuster, and one of the first things they'll do is pack the Supreme Court. Well, I mean, sure, there's a whole range of things that they can do. I mean, right now you can't add more judges to the different courts, not just the Supreme Court, because you have to have a bipartisan vote. And if the Democrats have the presidency, the Republicans aren't going to give the votes to go and increase the number of judges on circuit courts or the Supreme Court or anything else. Well, they won't need to do that. They won't need a, a single Republican vote then to be able to go and increase the number of judges. Um, and But it's beyond that. Uh, you know, They'll be able to completely rewrite the voting rules. Uh, Biden promises that he that the first bill he's going to put forward is going to be giving citizenship to illegal aliens. You know, 22 million illegal aliens would be given citizenship then. They would be able to go and vote. Uh, they're promising to abolish any of the rules that some states have to require photo IDs to be able to go and vote. 
They promised to rewrite state regulations on mail-in voting that's there. Uh, you know, it's going to be lucky for Republicans to ever win an election again, at least in their current form. You have Democrats promising to give statehood to D.C. as well as Puerto Rico. Biden, as well as the Democratic platform, are strongly uh, promising that. Uh, you know, that would be four more votes in the Senate for Democrats to have. Uh, you know, it's going to be really fundamental changes. I don't think people realize what a radical shift in the way that we do government would occur if uh, if you got rid of the filibuster, as everybody from Biden to Kamala Harris to Chuck Schumer and others are talking about. People can find more at our website at crimeresearch.org, and, and my new book that's just out is Gun Control Myths. John Lott, thank you very much for uh, for being with us, and we'll be right back after these uh, commercial messages. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. In this short segment, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the COVID epidemic. Uh, there's a lot of skepticism surrounding the COVID epidemic, especially on the right. Uh, there's, a, there's a pervasive feeling that the shutdowns uh, are either totally unnecessary or certainly have gone way farther than they needed to, than there was any purpose to, to go, and I, I, I am one that, that believe that. And I think a lot of people, especially on the right, are of the view that um, COVID hysteria has deliberately been and um, as for political reasons uh, that the Democrats uh, try to blame it on Trump and therefore want to make it seem as threatening as possible and that they want to prolong the shutdowns as long as possible uh, so that the economy doesn't show the kind of sharp rebound that obviously would help the president. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. I think there may be some truth to it uh, in some jurisdictions, um, but there's, there are definitely some people who believe it. So, I am the president of a, of a policy organization in Minnesota called Center of the American Experiment, and we produce a quarterly magazine called Thinking Minnesota. And with each quarterly uh, magazine, we conduct a poll of Minnesotans. And, and we polled uh, on several matters relating to the coronavirus uh, just within the last week. And I put this up on Powerline last night. Uh, but we asked people, uh, when do you think COVID-19 will no longer be an issue? How long is it going to be part of our lives? Very interesting result. 38% said it will continue to be an issue next year and beyond, even after a vaccine is developed. In other words, it's basically not going away. It's just going to be something we have to live with. 27% say, well, it'll go away when a vaccine is developed. Optimistic. Might turn out to be right. But 20% are cynical, and they uh, explicitly peg it to the election. 20% say it will go away after election day. Now, up until now, um, you know, I've been willing to say, well, that's too cynical of you, too skeptical of you. Um, you know, it, it can hardly be true that the Democrats are deliberately dragging our country down to this extent uh, in order to try to win the election. But then I saw something that made me reconsider that. This is audio of um, a, a, the senior health official, the, the Los Angeles County Public Health Director, a woman named uh, Barbara Ferrer, 
talking with school administrators about when the Los Angeles schools, the biggest school district in America, when they can let the kids come back to school. And, and, and this, this audio got captured and leaked to a local radio station. Thank goodness for uh, talk radio, right? And so this uh, Dr. Ferrer says, we don't realistically anticipate that we would be moving to either Tier 2 or to reopening K-12 through schools until at least after the election in early November. When we look at the timing of everything, it seems to us a more realistic approach, approach to this would be to think that we're going to be where we are now until we are done with the election. Well, who's we? You know, public health people, teachers, administrators, I don't know. But there you have it from Los Angeles, explicitly linking the children's ability to return to school uh, with the election. And maybe that is uh, telling us something of, more, of broader significance, too. We'll be back with more after these messages. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Robert Curry. Robert serves on the board of directors of the Claremont Institute, and is the author of Common Sense Nation, Unlocking the Forgotten Power of the American Idea, as well as Reclaiming Common Sense, Finding Truth in a Post-Truth World. Both books uh, come from Encounter Books. Robert, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Robert, you've got an article um, on American greatness uh, that is titled, Turn to the Founders to Remind Ourselves of What We Stand to Lose. And I want to start by just asking you broadly about that article. What, what's your theme there? Well, we're, it's amazing, but we're in the same situation the, the, uh, the founder's generation was in. You know, the Federalist Papers were written to um, convince the American people to vote for this wild and crazy idea of the founders that we could govern ourselves. So it was a, really a vote for regime change because what they had is a situation where they were being ruled as a colony. And so the founder's generation considered this wild and crazy idea and actually voted for it. We voted in the Constitution and the system that we've enjoyed, the wonderful system that makes America. Well, this is the first time when we are have a chance to vote for regime change again. I mean, the Democrats have come right out and said it, and they made it clear they, they're for getting rid of the, you know, the final important piece of the Constitution, the Electoral College. You know, they don't believe in the American way anymore. They don't believe in America. They want to get rid of the borders. So it's been since the founder's generation that we have the opportunity to vote in a new regime. The new regime would be one that replaces the American system that we've known. Yeah, it's a scary thought, isn't it? Um, Not scared. We're, we're seeing this. We're seeing this overt attack on the Constitution. Yes. I think for a long time the left has been trying to undermine the American Constitution, but at the same time paying lip service to it, right? I mean, they, they kind of exactly had to. That's exactly right. That's but been I, the secret I, of success. 
Yeah, but I think now we're actually seeing them, you know, openly coming out against the Constitution. That's right. They make and they, and they are making a. I mean, I think their assumption is that the country is ready to abandon the American system and the American way of life, and so that's and they're that so they don't have to hide out anymore. They don't have to be covert and pretend to believe in the Constitution. They can come right out and say, "Hey, this baby, this sucker's going down," and you know, and we're happy about it. Well, what do you think about that? I mean, I one of the things that puzzled me, Robert, is is why at this moment in time we're seeing this the emergence of this just extreme radicalism. We're seeing violence in the streets. We're seeing an effort really to carry out a coup against our elected president, Donald Trump, which has been going on now for nearly four years. And what's odd to me is the timing of it. I mean, there's no war going on. America's at peace. You know, as of the beginning of this year, we were enjoying probably the greatest prosperity this nation has ever seen. What, what, why? Normally you think of revolutions as happening, uh, as in, in coming out of times that are very troubled. Uh, this one is coming from a time that was extraordinarily prosperous and peaceful. Well, what's going on there? It happened on campus. So what happened was, and I, I was in school and you were probably too when it was happening. I mean, we had a, you know, we had a, uh, a, a, a takeover by the sixties radicals. They took over the universities. Um, they are um, the universities are all today, you know, with the tiniest exceptions, rarest exceptions, believers in um, you know exponents really of, of uh, postmodernism. The key tenet of that is that there's no truth. There's no such thing as truth. They're not interested in truth. And so what they've done in, in the university is, is substitute conditioning and indoctrination for an education. So you know these kids that are rioting. Lots of them have, have are graduates of or are students in important colleges, even very prestigious universities. You know, so they've been. What happened to them was they've been the victim of a of a horrible project of indoctrination that's turned them against their own country. So when these you know that young girl who was arrested in uh, young lady college student I think Columbia in New York, you know they were they had the crowd the the mob that she was in was saying, you know, burn it all down, you know, and uh, she's a child of privilege. Her parents are privileged. She was on the Upper East Side. So she's not suffering from uh, any of the problems that she uh, hates America for. You know, she's the perfect example of the answer to your question. I mean, she's a person of tremendous privilege who has been trained to hate her own country. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, and you know, you talked about the fact that the colleges are, are a seedbed for this anti-Americanism. I would add to that, though, Robert, that nowadays it's not just the colleges. We're seeing anti-Americanism in, in indoctrination in in that perspective in the high schools and all the way down into the elementary schools. Yeah, that's where. But it came from the colleges, you know. Bill Ayers, you know, who who only regretted that he hadn't been able to do more terrorism in America, you know, was a distinguished professor of education. So, you know, first you radicalize the, the colleges, and then you do that for a couple of generations, and the uh, people who uh, run the big corporations, the people on Wall Street, they, they got the same education. Yeah, that's one of, this, what's, one of the very strange things about this to me is this whole concept of woke corporate America. I mean, company <laughs> yeah. after company after company, you know, donating hundreds of millions of dollars to this Marxist uh, radical uh, Black, Black Lives Matter organization. And uh, yeah. and doing all kinds of things to to demonstrate to the world how 
left-wing they are, how anti-American they are, how anti-free enterprise they are. I, 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 we live in a world gone mad, Robert. What, what explains that? It, it, they got indoctrinated in, in, the fan, in the best universities. I mean, these people, you know, um, these people have gone to the best schools, and, and they've gotten the indoctrination there against America. I mean, the, the colleges and the universities have taught anti-Americanism so that now, you know, your kindergarten teacher and your corporate executive are indoctrinated in anti-Americanism. It's really, well, it, if, you, if you have to, you, what you've got to do to find, un, to understand it, you simply, if you've been to college, been to university, simply check out what's going on on your campus, you know, where you, where, where you, um, where you went to school. And, and, and you'll be stunned at the things that are being done as, um, you know, as education. I mean, these grievance studies, you know, Black studies and Latino studies. These are, you know, grievance programs. And the and the uh, and the, you know, my nephews had to, you know, when they went to college, had to go to these courses and and uh, learn about how bad America was. Now they're they they happen to be impervious to that because of their mom, you know. But uh, but they got they reported to me the kinds of things that are being taught in the university, and it was you know, enough to scare you. It's it is unbelievable. We're talking with Robert Curry. Robert, in your American Greatness piece that we talked about before, one of the things you say is that to, to, to get ourselves grounded again in, in uh, uh, American government, we, we all should go back and, and read the founders and, and read the Federalist Papers and remind ourselves of, of what we've got and why we've got it. Elaborate on that a little bit, if you would. Yeah, you know, I think the deepest thing that I feel about the founders is that, one, the depth of their genius. The more you study them, the more you think about them, the more profound their wisdom was, it, you know, the wisdom that's in the system. But the system itself is completely simple and commonsensical. Your, your, um, your plumber very likely understands the system kind of innately better than the high school teacher, you know, you know, who's re- who's poisoning your child's mind against America. It's a very simple, clean and beautiful system, easy to understand. And and by the way, the Federalist Papers, people consider that that's something, gosh, that's for smart people or something, or intellectuals. But hey, the Federalist Papers are a collection of op-eds in which three of the founders said, hey, look, I know it's a wild and crazy idea, but here's why you ought to vote for it. It's written for ordinary people. Now, I admit that ordinary Americans were better educated, you know, in the 18th century than they are today. But... Uh, any person of native intelligence can understand the Federalist Papers. They're really written for they're written for you and me. What percentage of, of American college students do you think at any time during their four years in school read any any of the Federalist Papers? No, 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 not at all, not at all. Yeah, this is it's not uh, it's not part of college uh, curricula as far as I've been able to determine, except at the level of of uh, graduate school. On the other hand, though, those same college students are reading Marx. Being yeah, Marx, you know, yeah, on their own, right? in, on, on their own, on their own origination, even you know. Yeah, and I think it's very common for for Marx uh, to be assigned at, at, as a yeah. as a text in, in in colleges, and I think in high schools. Uh, who, who's the guy that wrote that awful People's History of the United States? It's yeah, anti-American. Yeah, uh, Howard yeah. Zinn. Yeah, I think Howard yeah. Zinn's book is maybe the most widely read uh, textbook on American history. Yeah, and I can tell you the Federalist Papers are so much easier to read than Marx. 
my God, Marx is very, very he's almost indecipherable. But the it's, federal you know, papers are quite clear. It's, it's hard to read stuff that doesn't make any sense, Robert. I think that's part of the problem. <laughs> hey, listen, we have to run to a hard break here, Robert. But when we come back, I want to talk about your new book. Thanks. We'll be right back after these messages. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we are talking with robert curry a member of the board of directors of the claremont institute and the author, most recently, of a new book, Reclaiming Common Sense, Finding Truth in a Post-Truth World, available from Encounter Books. Robert, tell us about your new book, Reclaiming Common Sense. Thank you very much for such a wonderful question. Well, it's a follow-up to my first book, Common Sense Nation, and, um, and, and it uh, helps a little bit to say a word about it. The, I set out to understand the founders. And you know, the, I started with the declaration statement. You know, there's two very funny words in that famous sentence: unalienable and self-evident. You know, they, here's here's the famous statement from the declaration. Without them, we hold these truths: that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain rights. So it sounds different when you leave out self-evident truths and unalienable rights, doesn't it? So I traced back where the where the founders got those ideas, and it turned out they got them from some philosophers in what's called the Common Sense School of Philosophy. These were Scottish uh, thinkers. And so I showed in the first book how the ideas of the Common Sense philosophers were what the founders used to design the new system. And I just stuck with showing that. But the second book came out of all the people who asked me, about, well, what about common sense? Well, you know, what the heck is, you know, that, I thought that had been discontinued in the university. I thought that... People didn't think in terms of common sense anymore. So reclaiming common sense is a defense of the, the idea of common sense. And the basic idea of, of that is, here's what, the, here's what the philosophers of common sense taught. <clears throat> they taught that there are self-evident truths and that we know self-evident truths by our common sense. And so they based the whole system on the idea that Americans, because we had common sense, could govern ourselves. And because we had common sense, we could discover what's self-evidently true, which was what we needed to govern ourselves. You know, it's interesting, Robert. Let me let me just bounce something off you. I, this is okay. very different from what I'm sure you're writing about in your book, but it's something that's been on my my mind later, lately. And that is the death of what I see as the death of common sense in the United States. You know, yes. historically, all through human history, a person's principal frame of reference was his own experience and his own observation. Yes. And if somebody tried to sell a line of BS, the first thing yes. anybody would do is, well, I'll test that against my experience. You know, is that right. consistent with what I've seen, what I've experienced? And if the answer is no, uh, a person would say, I, I don't buy that. You know, I don't buy that. That's not that's not the way I've seen things. And and it seems as if nowadays that that ability to check claims against one's own observation in an intelligent way is just gone. And 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 an example of that is. Someone has done public uh, opinion surveys, both in Europe and in the U.S., asking people, what percentage of the population do you understand, do you believe, has died from COVID-19? And I believe the median answer in the United States was 9%. Well, no wonder people are scared. <laughs> you know? 
If I mean, that would be 30 million people, right? But, but what's so crazy is apparently the people who, who think 9% or more, because that's the median answer, have died. You know, if that were true, uh, your neighborhood would have been decimated. Your, your co-employees would be dropping like flies. Your friends and relatives, you'd be going to funerals. Well, you can't go to funerals, but, you know, you'd be, you'd be losing one friend or relative after another. Obviously, those things aren't happening. And yet it, it seems like, you know, Americans are willing to defer to what they see in newspaper headlines, what's alleged to be true by so-called experts. And we've, and a lot of us seem to have lost the ability to, to, to judge the plausibility of things that we're told. Well, I have a lot of sympathy for the American people in these days. I, they're, they're in a terrible situation, really, because they're taught in school from early on that there's no such thing as truth. In the university, that's pounded into their heads. When young people go off to a school that I know, I tell them, look, they're going to try to beat the common sense out of you. Don't let them. So the, uh, so the, the, what the result in the news is that since these news people know that there's no such thing as truth, well, then what is, what's the job? The job is no longer to report what's going on as part of a process of discovery where the nation together under, comes to understand what's going on, which is the traditional idea. But now, since there's no such thing as truth, there's only the narrative. And, and so what's the choice that they've made is the, the, the press, the new so-called news, has made the choice to be on the side of a, a narrative that they believe is going to win. They're going to be on the side of the winning narrative. So they can they so COVID is is the end of the world, and we're going to convince everybody that it's the end of the world. We're not involved in a process of discovery. We're we are championing the winning narrative, and that's a tough situation for regular Americans who turn on the news while they're making breakfast or listen to it when they're checking for traffic and the weather in the car. Yeah, I think you make a great point. If there is no such thing as truth, then all, all you have to do is pick a side, right? It's, and that's what they've decided to do. Yeah. There's nothing else. To, there's nothing else. See, if there's, the whole postmodern thing comes down to this. If there's no truth, there's only the narrative. Choose your side. Now, the postmodernists have overwhelmingly chosen Marxism, leftism. So that's, that's the narrative that the kids get in school. You know, I want to come back to why that's true in a moment, but, but this thought occurs to me, Robert. I don't know how, how you run a country or a society if, if you fundamentally don't think there's such a thing as truth. So years ago, I attended a really interesting lecture by an academic who started by, he, he started by contrasting two things. One is an article that had come across his desk, basically an attack on truth. You know, there's no such thing as truth. You know, and, and talking right. about how this is very widely accepted, you know, in academia. And then the second yes. thing that came in the mail was a summons to jury duty. And, and the Perfect. summons talked about, you know, it will be your job as a juror to find the truth, you know, right. to determine what's, what's true. I, I spent 41 years, Robert, as a litigator, trial lawyer, tried many, many, many jury cases. And so, you know, my whole life was spent trying to, trying to discover what was true and then convince other people of what was true. And, and if, you, if you don't think that that is a, a, a worthwhile enterprise or even a possible undertaking. I, I, I don't know where that leaves you as a society. I address exactly that point in my book, Reclaiming Common Sense. I mean, you know, the, the, what does it mean if there's no truth? What does a promise mean? If there's no truth, what goes on in a courtroom? What, does, what is the job of the jury? If there's no truth, um, you know, uh, what, is, what, what's a, um, what, what does the, a marriage vow mean? I mean, it, there's, see, if there's no such thing as truth, then that means there's no such thing as lying. And if you see people brazenly, unlike the Clintons, you know, to do such a beautiful job of lying, I mean, they went to, they went to Yale. 
You know, they know that it's only a, the narrative, whether it wins or loses. They know there's no such thing as truth. Well, I guess that's right, Robert. If you don't believe in truth, it makes it really easy to lie. <laughs> we certainly have seen plenty, yeah, of, plenty of politicians who have <laughs> yeah. who have done that very skillfully. Yeah, lying is not even a, a it, lying gets handled just like that with that philosophy. Isn't that great? They think so. So, so is there? We have just about a minute left here, Robert, before Sorry. we gotta go. But, but uh, is there is there hope for us? I mean, where where do you see this heading? Well, I think I think that. Um, uh, the hope is the American people. I mean, I think that American people have a tendency to let things go sometimes a little too long. I mean, before World War II, you know, we were like, like com- almost completely disarmed, even though war was obviously coming. Americans, you know, didn't want to do that thing again. But when push came to shove, you know, they stood up and saved the world. So I got, you know, the, our hope is that the American people, that there's still enough American people who have common sense and love the country, that that uh, they're going to say, hey, look, this has gone too far. And we'll have to fix a lot of things, including the education, to, to get things back on track. Thank you for being with us, Robert Curry. And do check out, his, check out his latest book. It's Reclaiming Common Sense, Finding Truth in a Post-Truth World, available from Encounter Books. Thanks, Robert. We're going to go to a break. We'll be right back. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. We are joined now by Susan Crabtree, national political correspondent for Real Clear News. Susan, thanks for being on the program. It's great to be with you. Susan, you've got a column at uh, Real Clear Politics uh, that I want to talk with you about. It's, uh, it's extremely timely. It is about the fact that uh, President Trump has just released uh, within the last couple of days another uh, list of potential Supreme Court nominees. Uh, first of all, what did you make of his list? Well, I thought the list was interesting. Um, it was played a critical role in conservatives and people who may not have viewed him as, you know, a a normal dyed-in-the-wool Republican back in 2016, it assured them how he was going to uh, approach the makeup of the Supreme Court. And so this time around, he's making additions to that shortlist that he provided in 2016. And uh, he added a couple of senators, including Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton, uh, very stalwart conservatives. So that the reaction on the right was, uh, of course, acclaim. They all thought that was a wonderful idea, but the, of course, the, the left uh, reaction was equally ardent that they were very upset that they included he included those senators because, as you know, Senator Tom Cotton, it was quite the bold move to include him because he his columns about uh, how the president should use the Insurrection Act uh, to calm. You know, to try to quell these and crack down on these protests across the country, it produced a boycott of reporters at the New York Times. So he's a very controversial figure these days. So to include him on the list really stoked um, Republic, the president's Republican base, but also his uh, his opponents were equally offended by that. 
Now, uh, and one, one thing I think you've implied there, uh, but I want to make sure we make clear, is that this, this list does not replace his earlier lists of potential nominees. It's, it's a supplement to those lists. So all of the names, as I understand it, Susan, that, that he's ever talked about in the past uh, re- remain possible nominees. Is, is that your understanding, too? That's right. In fact, uh, some people have thought that the, the, the people that he did appoint were not on the original list and haven't been as conservative uh, as they would have liked. So he was quick to highlight during his announcement uh, a couple of days ago that Amy Coney Barrett of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Thomas Hardiman of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, these are both conservatives that have been, been up uh, for when Justice Anthony Kennedy's seat uh, when he was open after his retirement in 2018, these were contenders for that spot, but they didn't get selected. Uh, so it, he wanted to remind his base that, yes, those those two are still on the list. They're favorites among conservatives. And um, be sure that they will be at the top of his picks um, or the, his next vacancy on the Supreme Court if um, and when that does occur. Now, I may be wrong about this. Uh, it may, who knows? It's, it's certainly possible that... Um the actual next pick, assuming he gets another pick, you know, he has to get reelected for that to happen. Certainly possible exactly. that the that the next pick will come off this list. But I, I feel like it was done more uh, to make liberal heads explode and also to respond, remind conservative voters of this important issue. Uh, and and, and I, I say that because of some of the names on it, you know, um, obviously, Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton happens to be a friend of mine. And I'd love to see mm-hmm. him on the U.S. Supreme Court, but I, I think he's there more as kind of a troll to the Democrats than anything else. But also a guy like Dan Cameron. Dan Cameron is the African-American attorney general of the state of or the Commonwealth of Kentucky who gave a terrific speech at the Republican National Convention and got a lot of publicity mm-hmm. for it. I think appointing him would probably be even more explosive than appointing Tom Cotton. Well, I think that this list certainly was um, used, this announcement was used to stoke the base. You know, the president was dealing with the Bob Woodward book and uh, an onslaught of negative press on the day that he announced this um, from the left. He um, was getting criticized for his coronavirus uh, messaging. Uh, he had just had it. He was at a press conference where he announced these and then he opened up the questions and nobody wanted to talk about the list. Everyone was talking about uh, the Bob Woodward book. but. He also is trying to goad, um, and conservative groups all year have been trying to goad, uh, Joe Biden into more transparency about who he would appoint on, uh, for, to the high court and to, to his the judicial federal, the federal bench. Uh, and there have been several calls during even the, back in the primary, the Democratic primary for, uh, for these Democrats to say, and now Joe Biden to say, who's well, President Trump is saying who he would choose. Now, uh, it's turn, your turn to provide some transparency, uh, but Biden's not taking the bait. Uh, and we're, we're up, we're up against a break here. We're up against a break here, Susan. Sure. Let's hold that thought for now. We're talking with Susan Crabtree. And when we come back from the break, I want to ask you, Susan, why do you think it is that the Democrats are so reluctant to name names? We'll be right back with that after these messages. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Susan Crabtree of Real Clear News. Susan, right before the break, you were, you were talking about the fact that there's been some pressure on Joe Biden to match the president and let us know if he wins the presidency, who is he likely to appoint to the U.S. Supreme Court? Why do you think that, that Biden, and I think it's fair to say Democrats generally, have been, have been so reluctant to do that? Yeah, there's groups on the left that are demanding that they uh, appoint less sort of establishment figures, more um, uh, public uh, defenders, not just prosecutors and people in, in big law firms that have clerk for justices. A group like Demand Justice on the left, they put out 32 candidates um, that they are suggesting that Biden support. Uh, and some of these figures are more mainstream, like Katie Porter, who's a, a Congressman, new congressman, and she was a student of Elizabeth Warren's at Harvard Law School. But it also produced um, uh, people like Professor Zephyr Teachout of the Fordham University School of Law, who has called for the abolition of ICE, uh, the U.S. Immigration and Customs um, Enforcement Agency, during the 2018 campaign. So there are some more controversial figures, and some on the right are saying that they, this is he would. Uh, Joe Biden, if he followed this list, would return the Supreme Court to the 1960s style judicious judicial activist and left-wing judicial tyranny. That was Carrie Severino, who is, uh, runs the Conservative Judicial Crisis Network. So you know, there are these, this battle over whether he should disclose, but of course, if he disclosed, there'll be a pile-on from a conservative organization saying you know, these, these are far-left judges. So he's keeping um, it to the vest, and if he, as long as he doesn't have any uh, media pressuring him to do so, uh, and then he, he probably won't release it. Uh, but Trump has decided that this was an effective strategy for him in 2016. I believe it was one in five voters who said that this was very uh, important to them back then are also, um, there's about 53% of Republican voters who believe it's an important issue this time around as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think you make a great point there that um, whoever Biden puts on his list, um, it's either going to appall the, the left flank of his party or it's going to appall most Americans, one or the other. And, you know, the Supreme Court has over the years generally been a winning issue for conservatives, not a winning issue for liberals. There's more people, I think, who subscribe to the conservative vision of what the Supreme Court and what the courts generally should be all about. Well, there's about uh, I, he the, the, this is one of his crowning achievements. The president, uh, he always likes to say that he put 200 uh, he has appointed 200 judges two vacancies that uh, President Obama left open or came open during uh, the President Trump's tenure. And he and McConnell have worked very, very closely on this. And it's something that the conservatives just love the president for and gets uh, a lot of support. So this is one thing he wants to hit home in the final weeks of the campaign. But another poll recently has found that, you know, it's a big deal that Democrats are waking up to this issue, too, and that 57 percent of registered Democrats, a new morning consult political poll, uh, came out and said that they, too, believe that this should play a big role in how they vote in November. So if people are true to that, they will be calling on Joe Biden to they might be calling on Joe Biden to release names and to say, you know, what exactly how how big of a priority is this going to be in your presidency? Because it has been a a big priority for President Trump. Yeah. And I suspect Ruth Ginsburg's health is maybe one of the reasons why this is on the mind of a lot of Democrats. Let me me ask you this question before we move on to a different topic, uh, Susan. Who, you know, who, who do you think, uh, assuming that he gets another nomination, which, of course, remains to be seen, who do you think is most likely to be Trump's next Supreme Court nomination? Well, I think that there has been some concern that John Roberts, uh, who was a uh, George W. Bush nominee, and uh, even Neil Gorsuch, to some, um, some extent, has been somewhat of a disappointment uh, for conservatives. 
in some of the rulings that we've seen recently during the coronavirus crisis. And so we have a big push for Amy Coney Barrett of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. As you know, she's an extremely, she's a Catholic, um, she's very pro-life. Uh, people like uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein has come at her for, um, over her religious affiliation, over her Catholicism, and saying that a litmus test on abortion, um, the conservatives have really pushed back and gotten behind Amy Coney Barrett, and uh, I think she she would be a leading candidate uh, to replace uh, the next Supreme Court judge if it's a Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Hopefully, you know, we're not hoping anything bad for her to happen with her struggles with her health, but uh, people are that she would be the uh, leading candidate for any new vacancy. I agree with that. I think Amy Barrett, if Trump gets one more choice, is going to be his, his nominee, and I think she would be a terrific nominee. And I think she would uh, troll the liberals almost as much as <laughs> Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton, maybe not quite. Susan, I want to move on now and talk about another very, very timely column of yours at Real Clear Politics, and that one is titled Trump and Biden Battle Over the Suburbs. And I think we all understand that the suburbs are going to be the main uh, you know, swing battleground in the upcoming election. And you begin the column by by talking about the idea that, that President Trump is trying to appeal to suburbanites and especially suburban women uh, with his law and order message. And you raise the question of, you know, is this really working? And I, for one, hope it's working because uh, I agree that that's exactly what he's trying to do. What What's your assessment? Well, the race is really tightening, and I think it is tightening because of this, uh, the protests that we've seen. Really, these are uh, the, the new element to this campaign. First, um, we had this in 2020 has been such a tumultuous year with the coronavirus pandemic upending the economy, uh, the biggest strength, the President Trump's biggest strength. So now that when we have this protest, that's the latest element in this campaign. And we're seeing um, that the Democrats a couple of weeks ago during the GOP convention started uh, panicking over this issue. They started seeing in their polling um, and even CNN's Don Lemon, you saw him react to this and say, you know, Democrats have to get it together and respond to this and say, you know, there's violence. Um, and the deaths that these protests have produced of innocent people in the destruction and the looting need to stop. And Lemon called on Biden to come out, and he saw the reversal, Biden's reversal on that. Well, there's a good reason for that. The polls are showing that the race is, is tightening significantly. All of the real clear politics polling averages show Biden leading narrowly to 5% or below in all the top battleground states. That's Arizona, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And in Florida, we've seen a new poll out on NBC Maris poll that shows him in a dead heat in Florida, which is very remarkable. And he won it last time by 110, 120,000 votes. Um, but it's a really key battleground for him. And what you're seeing now is um, I was taking a look at all the polls that are out there. And that's, it's not a great measuring stick when, you, when you're talking about Donald Trump. It's the only measuring stick we have. But there was a new Yahoo News, YouGov poll out uh, conducted at the end of the GOP convention that found that Biden was leading Trump. 47% uh, to 40% overall, but Trump was leading Biden 45% to 43% among all suburban voters surveyed. Susan, and we have to hold, we have to cut you off, we have to cut off right there because we're up sure. against a hard break. But we'll talk more uh, about the battle for the suburbs, which is raging when we come back after these, uh, after these messages. Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the program. We are talking with uh, Susan Crabtree about uh, polling, and particularly the polling as it relates to the to the suburbs. And Susan, you know, if you're a Republican or a conservative, you can get discouraged by the fact that but Biden leads in in all these polls to some degree. If you just simply look at the national uh, preference numbers, and um, and for me, that's a little hard to believe because the guy is so visibly impaired. You know, but but so what what does that mean? Why is it that Biden continues to hang on to that to that lead? Well, I think you have to look at um, the big Democratic states of California and New York, and they're not critical in the Electoral College. I mean, they don't even count. Um, they're sort of written off. But because they're such, hev- such heavily Democratic states, you're going to see them skew the national polling averages towards Biden. But when it comes down to the battlegrounds, which where this, uh, this election will be decided, all of the battlegrounds are within the margin of error on these polls. They're all below 5%. There's a gap of 5% between uh, Trump and, and Biden right now. And, you know, as people start focusing, they're focusing now uh, after Labor Day on this election, this is going to be a barn burn. It, it's going to be a nail biter. Uh, you have Pennsylvania, it looks like, neck and neck. Um, Florida is neck and neck, according to the polls, which could mean that Trump is really um, doing better there uh, because you saw going into it last time Hillary Clinton um, with leads uh, going in to the election. And um, you saw what the, some certain states flipping. Uh, you, you know, Biden, the team Biden likes to talk about how they're trying to compete in places like Arizona and Georgia, but that's not where they're traveling. You have to look at their actions. They're traveling to Michigan, Minnesota. They're traveling to Minnesota, too, by the way, which is where I am. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that Minnesota is a huge battleground right now. And all of these states, the suburbs, are more important. So I think when you hear the president talk about this law and order message, he is speaking to people who have, I mean, Minnesota has seen a lot of devastation or these, um, these riot, this rioting over the summer. And I think people are rightly concerned uh, about their safety. And you see that with the amount of people that are getting um, getting guns, gun sales right now, people concerned about their personal security, and also concerned just about the divisiveness in our country and the lack of unity um, that's going on. So we need to sort of thread that needle very carefully. Trump is talking about law and order. But a lot of suburban uh, moms and voters would like to hear uh, um, about healing the nation. Where do we go from here? What do we uh, when we talk about racial justice? How does that the leader of the nation sort of heal the nation? Um, speak out for both suburban voters concerned about the protests, but also the racial injustice taking place in this country. All right. Thank you, Susan Crabtree, and thank you all for listening to The Dan Prof Show. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.